Good morning, everyone. It's awesome to bow our hearts before the Lord. What an awesome God we serve. A God who really, his love has changed us. He has transformed us and continues to. May we embrace that and welcome and ask God to keep changing us to make us more like him. Uh, a few announcements before we start the message. Um, there have been some changes to the draft roster that's out in the foyer. Apparently, almost everything has been altered. So please check it just to make sure that it works for you and your schedule. Uh, and also, if you have any questions about camp that's coming up, we are having a church camp uh, 15 to 18 April 2024. It's a Monday to a Thursday. If you still have questions about that, talk to Laura and there are still, um, there's still room to sign up. And also deposits are needed even for the day visitors. So there's an option that if you wanted to come just during the day, that's possible. Uh, but still get your deposits in. That helps us. And thank you for, your, uh, for doing that. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your wisdom. Thank you for your majesty, that you are so awesome, that there is no God like you. There is no other God that you have created all things and by your hand, these things consist. And we thank you for sustaining us, for bringing us here today to hear your word, to fellowship, to worship you in song, to worship you in prayer and the reading of your word and pray that it would change us. We would, it would be fruitful, Lord. Our hearts would be prepared that if we are weary and fatigued, you would just drive that away from us, that we would be able to, to fix our eyes on you, to hear your word, to say amen and to live lives that reflect your truth and glorify your name. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We'll be in Romans chapter 2, verse 17, if you want to turn there. One of my favorite folk tales is The Emperor's New Clothes by Hans Christian Andersen. I think it's just timeless. It's relevant. The story, in a nutshell, is about a vain emperor who loved fancy clothes Two swindlers come to town and they, they claim to be weavers that made incredible fabric. And their cloth had this marvelous ability that it was invisible to everyone who was unfit for office or unusually stupid. And the emperor's like, this is a great thing. I can tell by this fabric if my advisors and officials are fit for their roles. So he said, right on, I'm signing you guys up. I'll give you everything you need. I'll pay you. And so he gives them gold thread, which they put in their bags. And they set up these looms and pretend to be weaving something. So the king sends in a couple of his servants to survey their progress. And, you know, there's nothing on the loom, but they don't want to admit they're stupid. They don't want to admit they're unfit for office because they can't see this fabric and so they choose to fawn over the samples and, oh, oh, that's brilliant. That's great. And then the, the emperor himself goes and he's like, oh, to think that I would be unfit for office. And so he plays along as well. And the day came when he's dressed in this fine apparel. He's paraded before the people with his nobles carrying his imaginary train and paraded him through the streets. I have a picture of, from the original. So this is the, uh, the emperor, his nobles carrying the train and he's just showing off in front of the people and all the people are like, oh, isn't he lovely? Isn't he glorious, magnificent in his new clothes? 
until one child said, but he hasn't got anything on. And everyone's like, oh, that's right. He hasn't got anything on. And I love the end of the, the tale. It says the emperor shivered for he suspected they were right, but he thought the procession has got to go on. So he walked more proudly than ever as his noblemen held high the train that wasn't there at all. So you've got the noblemen who are behind him. And in the picture, they're all <laughs> parading their emperor around in his new clothes. So you have these imposter weavers, imaginary clothes, people ignoring obvious truths to save face and to please others. And it was only a little child who was willing to say what was obvious to everyone that the king was unfit or the emperor was unfit for office and stupid. That's the moral of the story. So in his letter to the Roman Christians, Paul, he speaks the truth boldly like that little child who didn't soften his message for people who might disagree with him. For those who would be offended by it, he spoke the truth of God, the plain truth that God has spoken throughout scripture and for all time. And he explained that those who sin, those who approve of sinners, those who judge others to be sinners are all without excuse before the righteous God, that all are under sin. So whether man's judged by the standard of the law of Moses or by his own conscience, it doesn't exonerate us from our own failings. It doesn't make us less guilty before God. And God's given us a conscience that accuses us of sin and also excuses us this inner moral authority that God holds us accountable to. And he holds us accountable to a principle that Paul expressed in 1 Corinthians 8.1. He said, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Love builds up. And we in the church, we need to learn this lesson that Paul teaches in the second half of Romans 2, that identifying as a Christian doesn't mean you are living like a Christian. And doing what's right doesn't mean that your heart is right before God, because God is looking at the heart. So picking up our passage in Romans 2, verse 17. Indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are excellent being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor to the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. Previously in this chapter, Paul said that it's not the hearer of the law who is good or justified, but the doer of the law. It's fine to know what the law says, but you have to actually do it to be righteous. And that's a big problem because no one can keep the law perfectly. Paul, then he takes aim at his fellow Jews who rested on the law as he did as well. At one time in his life, he had insight into the mindset of the Pharisees and scribes and the impact of Judaism and how it impacted his daily life. That Everything you did was based upon the law, the clothes you wore, the words you said, the places you went, the people you hung out with, the food you ate, everything was governed by God's law. And the Jews took pride, not just in their culture or ethnicity or heritage, but the special call they had answered to enter into a covenant with God a covenant from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all the way down to them. The God who revealed himself to them. 
And I was reading an article about their allegiance, the Jews allegiance to Torah and the oral traditions. It said it contained the eternal divine formula for the world's future workings. And thus the answers to all problems for all times and all people. So they have the authority. They have God and they had his law and they kept his law. They could look around and see all the times that other people were ignorant of his law, not keeping his law. They copied it. They treasured it. They studied it. They debated and memorized it. They obeyed it. I mean, they were just immersed in the law of God and the worship of God. So Paul says, assuming you're a Jew who rests on the law and boasts in God, assuming you believe his will and approve of what's right, that you're the expert. It follows that the view of yourself is going to impact the way you view others. They saw themselves as the ones who were doing the teaching about God. They weren't going to the Gentiles to say, tell me about God. They're like, we could tell the Gentiles something about God because all these idols they're worshiping are not God. We have the real God. They knew God. We see this principle really at work everywhere. There's a driving instructor, right? There's a learner first time behind the wheel. Do you think that driving instructor is going to ask the learner for tips? What to do? Where, to, where should you put your hand? Where should I put my hands when I drive learner? No, it's like they're trying to get this learner to be thinking about where their hands are being put, where, how their feet are operating the pedals, um, how to get them thinking about approaching driving. I think of a doctor who's trained to diagnose illnesses and recognize them, write scripts for medication. The doctor is the one who says what the illness is. Um, from birth, the Jews have been raised according to law. They were experts in the law. They're male circumcised on the eighth day. They were taught by rabbis, Levites, Levites and priests. They were immersed in a life ruled by God and Outside their circle, they saw people who did not know about the feasts, the sacrifices, the offerings, the duties. And they're like, they're the blind ones who need our insight. Okay. That was their perspective because of, they knew God. They saw themselves a certain way as his people. And thus the people who were not with them were outside. They saw the converts, potential converts like babies that needed to be taught and fed and raised and trained. And we can have the same mindset in the church as well. Knowledge has the capacity to puff up with pride. It's only after we come to Christ and we're filled with the Holy spirit. We're immersed in the scriptures. We begin to change. We begin to see things in our lives that we never realized were sin before. Has that happened to you? And the, the more you walk with Jesus, the more you realize there are more areas of your life to confess sin and to forsake it. And in making these changes in your own life, because God's doing it, you start to look around and say, Oh, well, that's not right. That's not right in society or that's not right in that person. And you begin to judge others. Potentially we might take pride in how we preach through the scripture verse by verse, or, you know, we desire that people would come to know God, that they would read his word. Because even in a church, the word, the truth of God could be suppressed to curry favor in a secular world. And there's no one, there's no problem with wanting other people to be blessed as you've been blessed to have uh, known God 
through reading and studying his word. We can be confident in what we do and why we do it. We believe that we know God's will and we can be a guide to those who do not know God. And we can point out chapter and verse to prove it. And we have a form of knowledge and truth, right? So we can identify even with what Paul is saying to the Jewish people. So consequently, unless we remain humble and teachable with a lifestyle of repentance for sin and giving grace to others, we start to develop blind spots about ourselves. It's other people that are wrong. It's other people that are sinners. It's not us. We don't have to be changed because we've already been changed. And we can slide into that mindset. We don't need them to teach us. We're the educated ones. We are the qualified experts. Picking up in verse 21. You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. So Paul asks these self-confident Jews. He says, do you follow your own teaching? Do you practice what you preach? That's a good question. Not just for Jews in Rome or pastors, but for all Christians. He said, you have the law. Do you actually follow the law? Do you do what the law says? It's possible that those who taught stealing was wrong. They used the law to justify what God calls theft. They said they hated idols, but did they really enjoy the profit that they received from idolatry? People who would come to worship idols and they saw that as a market to explore and to profit from. So you, you say the idol's bad, but you're happy to profit from idolatry. Don't you see that as a problem? So Paul's laying this out. He uses their intimate knowledge of law to expose their hypocrisy. This is something Jesus did. He criticized the religious rulers they laid aside the commandments of God to instead keep the traditions of men. Jesus said this in Mark 7, 10 through 13. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is Corban, that is a gift to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down and many such things you do. They made their boast in knowing God's law and teaching his law, but they dishonored God by breaking his commandments. God commanded all to honor your father and mother, even when they're elderly, even when you should be financially supporting them as best you can. But the Pharisees said, we commend those who put God first, put God first in your life. And so they're like, well, instead of honoring my father and mother by supporting them, I'm going to give a large donation to the temple. And the priests were like, bring it on. This is great. Praise God. But they were dishonoring God because they weren't honoring their father and mother. That's what God commanded to them. He commanded them to do. And it says to obey is better than sacrifice. God wants people to obey him. That's how he's honored. God's not honored by people who know his law, people who teach his law when they don't follow it themselves. 
Knowledge added to their sin. And there's a lot of Greek words, and I'm not going to try to say them all because I'm not a native Greek speaker, um, that identify different types of sin. So each of these word, each of these phrases I'm going to say, there's a different Greek word to describe a kind of sin. So missing a mark, that's like trying to shoot an arrow and you didn't hit the bullseye. Well, it's a sin. You tried, but you failed, right? Um, stepping over a line, disobedience to a voice, falling when one should have stood, Ignore, ignoring what you should know, diminishing what ought to be rendered fully, discord or disagreement. So there's a lot of different ways that we can sin. And I want you to turn to the passage Paul quotes from in the Old Testament. It's in Isaiah 52 verse 4. Isaiah 52 verse 4. And this is quite surprising. The scripture says, for thus says the Lord God, my people went down at first into Egypt to dwell there. Then the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. Now, therefore, what have I here? Says the Lord that my people are taken away for nothing. Those who rule over them, make them wail, says the Lord. And my name is blasphemed continually every day. This is a very strong statement to align Isaiah 52 with Romans 2:24, because it refers to the religious Jewish rulers through the prophet in the book of Isaiah. God detailed my people were oppressed by the Egyptians. They were enslaved by the Assyrians for nothing. And he said, what have we here? I like that term of phrase. And he, God had allowed the Assyrians to rise up in judgment of his people, but they blaspheme God by saying our gods are greater than the God of Israel. His name was blasphemed because they thought because they beat God's people that their gods were greater and that the God of Israel was like nothing. And if you read what the Rabshakeh said, when he came to assault Jerusalem, um, you see the blasphemy spoken against God. Like he is just like another idol. He's nothing. And so his name was blasphemed by these Gentiles. Without the fear of God, they committed atrocities against God people that he would judge them for. So Paul seizes upon this blasphemy by the Gentiles and he associates these Jewish religious rulers with the Gentile oppressors of the Jews. So it didn't matter. God was looking on and would not allow his people to suffer without help or the hope of deliverance, whether it was under the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, or the authoritarian Jewish rulers. Those who claimed to know and to honor God, they caused his name to be blasphemed among the Gentiles. Years ago, before he was born again, my dad had been put off Christianity by the conduct of some priests at his high school. He observed in them some behavior that he said, if this is a godly man, I want nothing to do with God. So God's name was blasphemed and seen as a little thing because of the conduct of these teachers. Now in this letter to the Corinthian church, Paul identified blatant sin within the church. It was seen as a disgrace, even among the Gentiles who were unashamed idolaters and sexually immoral. Yet it was acceptable in the church, this sin because of God's grace. And he said, this is wrong guys. 
And it wasn't until he pointed it out that they recognized it and they took, took care of it by removing it. The Jews who had the law, they viewed themselves as the bastion of God's truth, yet they dishonored him by hypocrisy. People in the church in the name of grace were guilty of embracing and practicing sin that slandered God's holy name that made God look bad. That made him look sinful as if he approved of what they were doing. And just thinking of it, we can be like those nobles in that picture who shamed the emperor by parading him around in his pajamas rather than admitting they don't believe that there was really fabric there, right? This, that whole charade did not have to happen. They could have gone in and said, you know, I don't see any fabric at all. But rather than admitting their fault or their inability to see, they were willing to walk around in the view of everybody and shame their master, their emperor, to save their own face, to shame God publicly. That's something we should never do in private or public, as if we are righteous while we're in sin. Now, it's crucial that we see sin as a universal problem. It's not just for this group of people or, oh, the Jews under the law or the the Gentiles in the early church. We need to take that for ourselves and say, this is my tendency. This is really who I am. Even after coming to Christ, I still lean towards a sinful way. And I need him to convict me of sin and to help me walk uprightly and to glorify him. Now, God is not mocked. He will see that we reap what we sow. Jesus went to Gethsemane. He knew that Judas was going to betray him. He also knew what he would accomplish by dying and rising again from the dead. So this passage, it really opens our eyes to the dire consequences of hypocrisy of knowing what's right, condemning what's wrong, but choosing to sin rather than to do what pleases God. And this is the the thing that really hit me. It's that we can be more concerned about a soiled, our soiled reputation or our image rather than admitting our faults more than glorifying God. Like, do I, do I care about my image more than glorifying God? Am I happy to improve my image before men and slander the name of God? That was very sobering to think about because I could see in my flesh, I think about myself. Romans 2, 25. For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law, but if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, Judge you who, even with your written code and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law. Now, the circumcision of male babies for the Jews was eight days after birth. That was a rite of passage. It was very important for them because it showed that they had entered into the covenant willingly that uh, God had made with Abraham and his descendants. Under the law, those who were uncircumcised, they were to be cut off from God's people. So Paul said, if you're under the law, circumcision is beneficial. It profits you 
because all you stand to gain by being included among God's people, by having the blessings and promises of God. So that's good if you're under the law. And then he said something shocking. He says, if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. The Jews would see circumcision as a badge of honor that they were part of God's people. So even if you kept the law and you had your child circumcised or you were circumcised yourself, it made no difference if you broke the law in other areas. You're like, hold on. Well, then why did I go through that? Why did I become a convert if it didn't matter? Well, this, this badge of honor or righteousness did not mean you were righteous. If you were living in sin, you did not have good standing before God because you were sinning all the ceremonies, the sacrifices, the washings. It didn't purify anyone from sin who were corrupted in their hearts. So circumcision to Jews under the law, we could say in the church, water baptism and receiving communion. They're intended to be symbolic acts. That's point to a spiritual reality that God is our King. We love him. We obey him. That's the, that's the message we are sending. I thought Matthew Henry made a good point. He said, this is not to drive us off from the observance of external institutions. They are good in their place, but from trusting to them and resting in them as sufficient to bring us to heaven. So God calls us to be obedient to him, but we should not assume or suppose that we're saved by what we know or by what we do. On the flip side, Paul saying those who are not circumcised physically, but they fulfilled the law of God as led by their conscience. They condemned those who had the law and broke the law. There were uncircumcised Samaritans and heathen who were more honorable and praiseworthy in God's eyes than those who could trace their genealogy back to Abraham and had been circumcised because they followed the law of their conscience. And this would have just been like, what? How is this possible? How could this be? Now, remember Paul's purpose. He's just, he's showing that all Jews, all Gentiles alike are unrighteous before God. It's not by works of righteousness we have done, but according to his mercy, he has saved us. There was a spiritual transformation needed for righteousness and salvation. We read about that uh, in Deuteronomy 36. So in the law, it talked about it but we see it fleshed out in Jesus and the gospel. So that passage says, and the Lord, your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord, your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. So life, it wasn't found in trying to keep the Torah or in reading the Bible or being circumcised, but by faith in God alone. Genuine circumcision then is not just the removal of the flesh, but removing sin from our hearts and God can do that. He's the one who said, I will do it. The Lord will circumcise your heart. It's enjoining ourselves to God by faith in Christ as revealed through the gospel. That's what really matters. The inside of a person Romans two twenty eight. for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter whose praise is not from men, but from God. 
Now we say commonly that the Jews are God's people, his chosen people. And this is true. He chose them. And Paul made the point that being God's people is not determined by your ethnicity, by rights or religious practices. It is a matter of the heart. Now we know you, you probably, I, I am sure you would agree that you can go online. You can purchase clothing that Orthodox Jews would wear. You can buy the prayer shawl and the tassels that you hang from your clothing, uh, the tefillin that you bind on your arm. Wearing that does not make you Jewish, right? Living in Israel, wearing that, going to the Western wall at set times, that does not make you a Jew at all. You're just wearing the clothes. One of the points of contention in the early church was the insistence that Gentiles needed to be circumcised to be saved. Similar to churches today that would say you need to be baptized in water to be saved. When salvation is a work of God that's done in the heart, that's how we are washed clean. We are purified by the blood of Jesus shed for us on Calvary. It's a saved person. One who is born again by faith in Jesus, who chooses to be baptized in obedience and identification to Christ. There's a lot of people who have been baptized in water who later in life said, well, I did that to please my parents. I just did it because I felt some pressure that this is what I needed to do. But it was just, it was just an outward sham really. So with, with being able to look back on your life and say, that was just something I did. I felt pressure. It shows that that obviously does not change you. It does not bring you closer to Jesus. If your heart is far from him, it was an empty exercise. Turn in your Bibles to Colossians two verse eight. This is a great passage because it combines um, talk of circumcision with baptism. And it shows us uh, just the wisdom of God. He has provided a genuine way to acceptance and forgiveness and relationship with God. But there are a lot of counterfeits. Colossians 2.8, it says, beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit. According to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. In him, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ buried with him in baptism in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So we are complete in Christ by faith in him and the gospel. We are born again. We are made righteous. We are made God's people. Because remember, circumcision was a sign that you were a child of Abraham. And God saying through Christ, we are made children of God by faith in him. And one of the things that cheat or it's a substitute, it's a counterfeit is philosophy. And it's important that we say philosophy according to the tradition of man. Because philosophy, according to the tradition of man, it fundamentally denies God and it denies the wisdom plainly revealed in his word. God's given us the ability to reason, to, to judge, to decide. 
So in one sense, philosophy is it's a vehicle that can be drawing us to God. But if it's according to the world and the wisdom of the world, it denies God. So he says, don't be cheated by that because uh, the word, the philosophy there or empty deceit, it's high sounding nonsense. So it sounds clever. It sounds smart, but there's no life there. There's no righteousness found there. It's in Christ. It's not in Aristotle or Descartes or Nietzsche or Marx or any ism in whom you're made complete. It's not your, your belief in Calvinism or Arminianism that saves you. It's Christ that we are born again through him, through faith in him. We're cleansed of our sin. We are made God's people. And the power that we see witnessed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, that is experienced by all who repent and trust in Jesus. Circumcision does not make men new. Baptism does not make you a new person. Christ makes you a new person. Instead of focusing on external things or external things, uh, evidence of conversion, like circumcision to Jews or baptism in church, Paul says a distinguishing characteristic of God's people is whose praise is not from men, but from God. That is a distinguishing trait of God's people. Who do you get your praise from? Is it God praising you or is it men praising you? Which praise is more important? Which one do you value more? John identified some in Israel who preferred the praise of men more than God in John 12, 42. It says, nevertheless, even among some, the rulers, many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him lest they should be put out of the synagogue for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. It's very sad that people would see the miracles Jesus did convinced. It was a miracle. Eight of the loaves, eight of the fish that they believed he was the Messiah. They were convinced of that truth, but did not confess him because they were afraid of excommunication. They were afraid of losing face and good standing in the Jewish community. So they did not confess him. They would not speak of him. And it says they did this because they loved the praise of men more than God, the praise of God. And this tells me that we have an opportunity to be praised by God that one day we can hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's take to heart the words Jesus spoke in Matthew 10, 32. He says, therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my father who is in heaven. Among us, I would say there are probably many of us who are, uh, would term ourselves people pleasers. We want to please people. And sometimes, or most of the time, that person is myself, right? <laughs> so a people pleaser, and that's someone who's trying to please everyone else. It's trying to make everyone else happy, and it's exhausting, and we can't do it. But we could try, and we keep trying. Uh, and sometimes that person is me. I'm trying to please myself. So the choices that we make confessing Jesus as Savior, does, they, does it suggest we love the praise of men or the praise of God? In the Old Testament, we're introduced to a family that pleased God so much. In fact, he made them an object lesson for the nation. Turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah 35 verse five. And this is awesome. The background of this story is the word of the Lord came to the prophet Jeremiah. And he said, go to the Rechabites, 
bring them into the temple and put wine in front of them and tell them to drink it. Little, you know, science, a, a little experiment, a little experiment. Bring those Rechabites in there. Now, these men and families had lived in the northern part of Israel. They came to Jerusalem because of the attacks by the Assyrian and Babylonian armies. We pick up the passage in Jeremiah 35, 5. Then I set before the sons of the house of the Rechabites bowls full of wine and cups. And I said to them, drink wine. But they said, we will drink no wine. For Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, commanded us saying, you shall drink no wine, you nor your sons forever. You shall not build a house, sow seed, plant a vineyard, or have any of these. But all your days you shall dwell in tents, that you may live many days in the land where you are sojourners. Thus we have obeyed the voice of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, in all that he charged us to drink no wine all our days, we, our wives, our sons, and our daughters, nor to build ourselves houses to dwell in, nor have we vineyard, field, or seed. But we have dwelt in tents and have obeyed and done according to all that Jonadab, our father, commanded us. So he brings these Rechabites in. He's like, guys, drink up. And this is the prophet Jeremiah. They're in the temple, you know, the temple grounds. And there would have been some pressure to say, well, I want to please the prophet. He's obviously speaking for God. Maybe they were thirsty, but they're like, nope, we don't drink wine. Because our father told us, don't do that. He wasn't even around. He likely had died by this stage. And it wasn't just that. He's like, you're not going to have seed, no vineyards, don't build houses. You're going to dwell only in tents. Okay. Because their dad said so, they did. And they're rightly called Rechabites, aren't they? They did what their dad said. They honored their father in a way that put Israel and sometimes us to shame. Because how many times have we not been faithful to our mother and father like they were? They were truly children of their father. Picking up in verse 12. Then came the word of the Lord to Jeremiah saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, go and tell the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Will you not receive instruction to obey my words? Says the Lord, the words of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, which he commanded his sons not to drink wine are performed for to this day, they drink none and obey their father's commandment. And so God's like, Hey, look, Look at these guys. You're putting wine before them. They won't drink it because their father commanded them not to. They're keeping the word of their father who's passed away. Shouldn't you obey the word of the living God? The one you call your father? Pretty strong logic. Can't deny it. Guzik in the Enduring Word Commentary says, in a sense, God only asks from us what we are willing to give to other people or other things. He's saying, if these guys would do that for their dad, why is it that you won't keep my word and do what I've asked you to do? It's like, wow. It's reasonable. It's compelling. They were not lured by the praise of the prophet the priests, their own thirst, they were faithful to remember and to obey their own father. And thus they had praise of God. Now the chapter concludes with this approval in Jeremiah 35, 18. And Jeremiah said to the house of the Rechabites, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. 
because you have obeyed the commandment of Jonadab, your father, and kept all his precepts and done according to all that he commanded you. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Jonadab, the son of Rechab shall not lack a man to stand before me forever. Doing it unto the least of these, my brethren, we have done unto him. And he's like, you have honored your father. You're going to be with me forever. Wow. That is amazing. There's this principle that God receives the obedience to others and to those of authority he has placed in our lives as unto him. And it, it, it pleases him. And God would keep this promise. We see his faithfulness to this promise seen after Jerusalem fell. 70 years of captivity in Babylon, the return of the exiles, rebuilding of the wall. Guess who was building the wall? A son of Rechab. We read in Nehemiah 314, Malkijah, the son of Rechab, leader of the district of Bet Hakarim, repaired the refuse gate. He built it and hung its doors with its bolts and bars. You're like, how awesome is God? He picks this group of people who are just obedient to their father. And he says, you guys, you're going to be with me forever. And then God is faithful to his promise. They showed they were sons of their father because they obeyed him. And may we be revealed as God's people that he is our father because we love the praise of God more than the praise of man. And if we can make an alternate ending to the emperor's new clothes, a good one would be after the parade's over, after that whole debacle is finished for the nobles to admit that, you know what? I was too ashamed and embarrassed to admit that when I went in there and I saw that loom, I actually didn't see any fabric at all but I felt stupid and I was embarrassed and I didn't want to say anything. And I'm sorry for parading you around and shaming you all day and pretending that I was carrying fabric that wasn't there. And I'll take whatever, <laughs> whatever judgment you make, but I'm sorry. Let's admit when we've loved the praise of men more than the praise of God, let's repent of our folly. Let's choose to honor God publicly and honestly from now on. God help us because God is pleased with our contrition. We feel sometimes that if we admit that we've done wrong, um, that he'll reject us. But instead he says, that's my boy. That's my daughter. Come here. And he draws us close to himself. God loves a broken heart. The sacrifices of the Lord are a broken heart and a contrite spirit. He will not despise these. He will not push away anyone who confesses their sin in humility. God is our father through Jesus Christ. And let's love him with all our hearts. May our lives show that we value his praise more than ever. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for your wisdom. Thank you for all the things that you have taught us that you are not a far away God who we cannot find your truth, uh, but you've opened our eyes to see you've come to us in the person of Jesus Christ. You've given us your word. You've given us your conscience. You've given us one another and you have shown us Lord, how much we need you because we are sinners. And thank you that you have dealt with our sin by forgiving us, by giving us new life and transforming us through the gospel 
And I pray that people would know we are Christians by our love for one another. And also because we love your praise more than the praise of men. That we would be like those Rechabites who obeyed the word of their father and were thus well called Rechabites. Lord, as Christians, may we follow Christ, be like Christ, love like Christ, serve like Christ, because he is our king. He is our God. And we, we, uh, we ask forgiveness, Lord, for the many times where we have only thought of ourselves or others, and we did not consider you. We did not um, honor you, and instead we caused people to blaspheme your name. So, Lord, may you purify us. May you uh, put in us a heart that truly loves you and that we would glorify and honor you now and forever in Jesus' name. Amen.